Hello and welcome to another episode of the Growth Podcast. I am your host, Matt Bellotti, and today I am joined by my colleague, Laura Oxenfeld. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hey, nice to be here. Very excited to have you here. Today, we are going to cover a topic that we haven't really touched on in the podcast before, which is all about how UX research can uplevel your growth team. So Laura has joined us how long ago? It was like a year ago. Almost one year. Almost one year. Almost one year. And so Laura comes from a a research background and makes some of the best research I've ever seen. Spends like hundreds of hours going deep into specific personas. And it made me think like even even if Laura's work isn't necessarily driving growth team specific stuff, I think that there is a ton of opportunity for us to think about and, and talk through how UX research and design research can inform growth team stuff. So Laura is coming from like a classic product research background, and I'll help contextualize it for, for the growth type stuff. And one of the reasons I'm really excited to cover this topic today is because when I was working at HubSpot, and I was working with Brian Balfour, who is the founder and CEO of Reforge these days in the, in the world of growth, he joined as the VP of growth. And for the first 30 days, he did no experimentation, he did no building of new products or or whatever it might be. His entire first 30 days with him and the team, I think he had a team of like two or three full-time people. It was just research. So he had the team just go super deep on research to understand the personas and all that. And I think that at the time people looked at it internally and they're like, he's researching? Like, isn't he a growth guy? Shouldn't shouldn't he be running experiments? And, And I think that the value that came out of that was so outsized. And I see the value that comes out of it here with Laura and the product team. So that's enough blabbering for me on that. I'm I'm excited to, to hop on in. So Laura, maybe you can give a quick background on yourself, and then we'll go ahead and jump into the topic. Yeah, and that's really interesting to hear at HubSpot. It just validates like my entire career, <laughs> how important it is to, to understand the users. So people that end up in UX research, we usually have different backgrounds. So I am actually trained in sociology, anthropology, so qualitative research methods. So I never got formal UX training. I'm a researcher at my core, and then I learned about UX and translated my skills into it. And then I have worked in like agencies, enterprises, startups, so all different sizes and structures. And I've seen yet UX and user research happen many different ways with lots of different outcomes. Now I'm here Drift. Yeah. And it's been amazing. The impact, I've told leadership on the team that I think Laura is one of the best hires we have made as an entire company over the past year. The first type of research that you told me that that we wanted to cover here was around like generative or discovery research. Tell us about that. Let's maybe start with like, what is it? How could somebody think about it? Yeah, definitely. And I think that the easiest way to explain user research is you do it in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. So in the beginning, you have to understand what is the big picture? What's the landscape? So the way I like to describe it is the first you need to understand the forest. And after you understand the forest, then you can look at the individual trees. So generative or discovery research is really from a user perspective, it's just zooming out and understanding workflows, day in the life pain points, what are their motivators, their goals. I've also worked in B2B research for so many years now that all my answers might be slanted to B2B. So it's like very focused on what people are doing in their jobs and like what tools are they using. And a lot of, well, I feel like the industry is shifting more towards valuing that type of research. But when I started my career, everyone just wanted usability testing. That's when all the decisions have been made. 
but you know, you can design whatever, but if you don't understand who are these people, what world are they operating in, then it's really hard to make informed decisions. And I know that user research isn't the only thing to make a decision on. So, you know, the PM counters it with lots of other data inputs. But at the end of the day, if you don't understand the big picture about the users, you're not going to understand them enough to anticipate their needs. Yeah. And and this sort of generative research, I think, is exactly what I, I saw Brian Balfour do, which was let's generate who the personas are, what they're doing, the things they care about, the tools that they're using so that you can frame all of your experimentation and an approach to trying things out in that rather than learning by like A-B testing, right? You learn the, the foundation first and then you build from there. Just to give some examples of the types of outputs and how they're used. So like you mentioned, personas, journey maps, service design blueprints, empathy map. So so basically the a primary output of generative research are these UX artifacts, these things that everyone in the company should have access to because it's not just product that's going to benefit from them, like sales, marketing, customer service, everyone is going to benefit from understanding the user better. And it should be the type of learnings that aren't going to change month to month. It's the kind of stuff that maybe maybe the journey or the persona will change over a couple of years, but it's worth the investment to like create these because you're going to use them for hopefully a couple of years to come. And so let's say we made these uh, all these artifacts, you know, whether it's like a centralized research team or, you know, if it's the product manager, or the designer on the team leading it for now. And we'll get back to the resourcing later in the podcast. But let's say those outputs are made. How can and should product teams or growth teams leverage these learnings over time? Is it like look at it before they make any major decisions? Is it kind of like bake it in and and like review it as a team? Talk to me through some of that. Yeah, so that's actually a problem that I'm trying to figure out right now, which is if someone like me goes, you know, I'm a, I'm not in the product team, I'm going to go figure this stuff out and put artifacts together. You know, I can show it to people, but how do I get them to use it? And it's not really just about how to get them to use it, but it's how do I get them to understand what's inside of these artifacts? So, I'm thinking of maybe putting together research integration workshops after like sharing out these types of deliverables and insights and and really get people to spend time. Like you said earlier, I might spend a hundred hours doing a multi-persona research project. So sharing it in 30 minutes or one hour, there's no way people are going to absorb that. So I have to think of ways to get people hands on with it. And once they understand what's what the content is, and they know where it's physically or digitally located, then it'll be easier for them to use it. But a like a concrete example of how I've been using a journey map recently is over the summer, I put together a journey map for one of our personas. And then now we're trying to think through like future thinking, storyboard, end-to-end workflows, where can we add value? And so I'm like, all right, let's pull up the journey map. And I just put all my sticky notes below those slices in the journey map. And I remind people like, we have a journey map. It might need to change, but let's like ground what we're thinking in the journey map. So I'm just trying to always remind people that the stuff is there, but in a better researcher would know how to get people to take ownership over those documents. Yeah, it's super, super hard. And I think what's so valuable about this generative stage is that it is super evergreen content. I mean, maybe maybe you have to revisit it every year or so when, you know, market dynamics are starting to change or user 
habits are starting to change. But I mean, I've seen some of the outputs you made. Like, there are things that are going to be hold true until there are like major behavioral shifts in the industry. One thing that I have seen growth teams do that is is worth noting here is bake into their process. So let's say an experimentation process, they have their hypothesis and they're going to try to move this number and they think they can move it this much. And and they bake in like a section of that experimentation framework in what research is this rooted in and like have it reference out that sort of evergreen generative research. And the more you can like, like you were saying, Laura, the, the more that you can take it and make it a part of the process. And I think growth teams especially have generally a very, very rigorous process. If you could bake something into that process, that is like, what is the research that backs up this hypothesis, right? Like hypothesis, and then show like link to the research, link to the slide, link to the artifact that justifies that there is validity behind this hypothesis. Yeah. And I, I haven't worked with growth teams before, but it sounds really perfect to have a a researcher work with a growth team because after a big study to just sit down with the growth team, be like, all right, what experiments are going to come out of this? So that, that would be, yeah, I'm like, how can we do that here at Drift? <laughs> just go straight from insight to experiment. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of opportunity here. Okay. Next type of research that we talked about before we hopped on here was concept validation. Tell us what that is, what that means and how somebody can think about it. So Concept validation is, so you understand the tree, the forest level, you understand the forest, or hopefully you do, or you have guesses about it. And then concept validation is like, okay, I think we should do this, this, and this. So it's more like when your hypothesis or your multiple hypotheses are being formed and how that manifests in, you know, digital design is this is where you start to either get some pixels on paper, or, I mean, you can have a concept that's just in the idea stage, like just sticky notes. But basically, before jumping into really detailed design work, it's better to just have a, a point in time where you stop and say, okay, here's where we think we should go, but let's do some user research to see. So it's kind of connecting back to how in discovery research, you're wanting to learn the workflows, the problems. So in concept validation, you want to see, are these realistic scenarios that we're building these concepts around and then have them again, rearticulate, like where in their workflow does this fit? Would it replace anything in their workflow? What would actually add more value? So just really trying to zoom in on the value add of the concept before you're like really investing in detailed design. Yeah. So it's, it's the setup, right? And I think about how growth teams can use this. Like, I think there is a tendency to just jump right to the experimentation, like design it, throw it out there. And and like I said before, let's just like do the A-B test. But I think especially for small changes, I think that that's fine. Like if you're A-B testing a button or whatever, but for any like big workflow type experiments, this is something that is super valuable to to bake into the process. Tell us about what some of those outputs look like from, from that sort of work. Yeah. So if you want to be nice and quick and lightweight, it can be as simple as say you have three concepts, like three different design directions or concepts, you can basically have your research plan around it. And then instead of doing deep analysis where you're getting like journey maps and all that out, you're basically just saying, does this concept pass or fail? And if it passes, just keep it going. And you can generally get a sense of that just like as you're doing the sessions. But if the concept is failing, if there are a lot of eggs in that basket, then maybe it's worth it to go in and do like your deep analysis in the data. But 
if you're just, you know, throwing ideas out there and it's okay that some concepts pass, just do a simple pass fail and move on. And talk to me a little bit about how have you seen this bake in well with product teams and kind of driving their their outcomes and, and their work? Yeah. So especially if there if there hasn't been time to do generative research first, concept validation is a really good way to maybe have some of the research guide be like a little discovery and then mix with concept validation. And it, it basically, I think the biggest value that can add is it prevents people from spending too much time on something that doesn't have legs. It's not rooted in reality. Things can feel a little waterfally in product where it's like, we have an idea and now we have to build it and put it live to see if it was a good idea or not. You actually don't have to do all that. <laughs> you can just like in the design phase, like figure that out. So. Yeah. So I'm just going to frame this again in, in the world of growth. I think the generative research is something that should kind of always come first. Like if you're spinning up a new growth team, you're yeah. working on a new product or whatever, the generative research is something that will guide your team and your decisions moving forward and make it so you don't just like, I think a lot of growth teams just start with like, we have this low hanging fruit. Let's like optimize this stage in the flow or whatever. But there is a better opportunity to step back and say like, what is our product solving for who and then what are all the other problems around that that way that all those decisions can be guided moving forward and then the concept validation comes in when you're doing like let's say maybe you didn't do the generative and it's a more complicated thing than like a one or two day experiment the concept validation is a really great way to see like is committing to this experiment worth the next three and a half weeks of our product and engineering team's time right you can kind of like get that sort of first pass like a, a bit of a gate to say this will take us a couple days let's do some validation before we we really commit to it and then you know once you're committing to it i think this is where the iterate on the growth experiment thing comes because you can commit to the concept build it out spend the time and then because you had done concept validation you then know that you should then keep experimenting on top of this because the core concept was validated rather than just like throwing it in the trash right away and moving on to something else, right? It yeah. gives you a better sense of like what to do as follow-up. Yeah, no, that, I think you said it perfectly. And also, so all this like qualitative research can only go so far and what people say they're going to do and what they actually do are two different things. So in concept validation, you should never ask, would you X or would you Y? It's just really understanding like the workflow and the problem and kind of their response to the proposed solution. But even though in concept validation, it might seem like it's all going to be gravy once it is out in, in production and behaviorally being used, it might be a different story. So that's where it is important. Like, okay, behaviorally, it's not being used the right way or it's not doing what we expected. But then going back to any of your user research before, whether it's concept or generative, like if you don't have those breadcrumbs, like you said, you just kind of have to throw it away and you're not learning from which part of this did we get right and which part of this did we get wrong. Yeah, I love that. It's about which parts are right and which parts are wrong. And knowing that you have the core piece right can help guide all of the product and, and experimentation decisions after that. Yeah. All right. The third bucket that we, we talked about before we hopped on the recording here is around usability testing, which you had mentioned earlier. So tell us about usability testing. What is it? How should someone think about it? When can and when should it be used? Yeah, so usability testing can be done on designs 
or on stuff that's out in the wild. And basically it's just how easy or difficult is it for people to complete tasks? And of course, we're kind of talking about the digital space. So, you know, on this website or in this app, how easy or difficult is it to do X, to do Y, to do Z? Basically, you think through what are the scenarios that get the person from A to B in the design, give them the scenario and just let them go through it and think out loud and let them know if you struggle, that's how we're going to learn. So it's not testing them. It's actually testing our design. Give them the space to feel like it's okay to quote unquote fail. And then through that, you just learn like, how do we need to tweak this design to make it easy to get through? And the reason, so before I mentioned that the industry used to over-index on usability testing, the reason that's bad is because you can make a really easy to use design, but it's not solving a problem that anyone actually experiences. It's not a workflow that adds value. So yeah, like usability testing, super important, but you have to make sure you're solving the right problem first. And the other thing is it's important to usability test whether you have one day of experience or 50 years of experience, because it's just, you really don't know until you usability test it with at least five users. So you do five users to get 80% of the usability issues out. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, I'm experienced. I don't need to do usability testing. Everyone does. Yeah, and I think I, I think the usability testing thing is critical here for the world of growth because I, I think a lot of teams and a lot of like growth practitioners and I've got myself in this spot before where you get so caught up in, all right, we release this thing, let's look at the charts, let's look at the numbers, let's see how many people are making it through to this step and and the usability testing piece can maybe the chart tells you that most people are getting through, but the usability test tells you that most people are having a hard time getting through or like they're getting through and then they get through with like 40% of the context and proper mind space than, than you thought, right? The number says 70 people, 70% of people convert from this stage to this stage. But then when you do usability testing, you can learn that while 70% of people convert, only 20% of them understood what they were converting to do. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think this is where brand comes in as well, because yeah, quantitatively, sure, 70% got through, but what per- what chunk of those now think poorly of your brand or your product? And that's something that you just can't get through quantitative data only. And the other thing usability testing can do is time on task. So it's like, yeah, they got through it. But if it took someone 10 minutes to do something and we expected it to take two minutes, that's not the best. You just need to to get humans to go through it. And based on what your your growth experimentations are on, like in B2B, we need our actual customers or people in that space to be doing the usability testing. But there's also types of usability testing where you just need a human with a pulse. And so someone that sits next to you in the office or you you can hop on a Zoom call with, that that works as well. And I'll toss out one other tip for for folks listening. I think if you feel like you're too time-strapped or you don't have the resources to do usability testing, putting something like a full story or a log rocket that lets you like watch the user sessions back is so critical. It could fill in those gaps. You can watch someone click around. One thing that we did, we've done for years on, on my teams is we sit down once a week, 
as a team, the engineers, the designer, the product manager, we sit down and we watch an hour of sessions. We just watch an hour of sessions where people like go through something that we had recently iterated on or experimented with. And we watch them like click on this thing four times, but they click on something and some other thing, pop, like another modal pops up that some other team had that only shows in this scenario, right? Like you can catch so many other things that you're not going to catch just through looking at the charts. Okay, so uh, Laura, we talked about some of this. Maybe I don't know if there's other like ways to frame or talk about the outputs of what usability testing looks like. Yeah, so it depends on how scrappy or robust you want to be. It can be as scrappy as debriefing with the designers after sessions and being like, okay, what stood out to you as like a glaring usability error? So actually, there's a method called the right method, which is like rapid iterative something something. <laughs> but with that, you do about three sessions. And you actually update the designs before you do the next couple sessions. So you're actually iterating the design as you go. So you're not waiting for the full five or six people to go through it. So that's just more of like a lightweight conversational way between the researcher and the designer. But yeah, you, you can do as much as a full-blown report where you're taking clips of videos and quotes and everything and putting it on a slide deck. But I'm guessing growth teams would index more to the let's just talk it through and figure out where to go from their side. Yeah, absolutely. Any other notes on how maybe you've seen product teams leverage the, the type of usability testing outputs before? So it maybe doesn't apply to growth as much unless like the growth team's embedded in a place with a design system. But I'm sure growth teams, like if you're doing experiments, you're you're veering away. If, if the organization has a design system, you're veering away from it. So that's a good rule of thumb. If you're just using design system components, you probably don't need to usability test it. But if you're doing some new patterns, that is when it's it's worth it to take the time. Also, you mentioned before, like, oh, if you feel like you don't have the time, that always just boggles my mind because it. I always say it's easier to fix ideas than it is to fix designs. And it's easier to fix designs than it is to fix code. So everyone has this perception of research slowing us down and taking time. But like, it's less expensive to fix stuff before code, you know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you save so much time and energy. Yeah. Let's maybe wrap on the topic of resourcing and, and structuring research teams or the research function. Uh, I think there are two general ways to do it. And, and I think the growth world has already thought a lot about this for like data scientists and data analysts. You either have a centralized data science team where your growth team's kind of like consult with them. It's like an agency model and say, hey, we want to dig into this part of the data. Can you help us? Versus having a data science scientist on the team and they go to the weekly syncs and they're a part of the like experimentation, you know, and prioritization and, and figuring everything out day to day. Tell me a little bit about how you think about doing research in those two different types of models. Yeah. So there's pros and cons to both sides of like being a centralized service versus embedded and the pro of being a centralized service is, you know, we can focus on what are the most impactful things that are also like require such a dive, such a deep dive that folks with 20 things on their plate aren't going to have the, the mental bandwidth to do. So yeah, central research can get you those really thorough journey maps, personas, all that, like the generative discovery level stuff. And I mean, we, we can do it all. But it goes back to what I was mentioning before, is that disconnect. So the more disconnected the person doing the research is from those daily conversations, 
daily Slack channels, all that, um, the less they are able to be the advocate for the user's perspective. So having either a researcher that's embedded in the growth team, so they're part of all those conversations, or leveling up. And I'm like not territorial about research. You know this. I don't care who wants to do the research. Anyone with the interest and the time, they should be the ones doing it. But yeah, so I think I think it works best when when the people who are in those daily conversations are running the research and it can definitely be collaborative. But for an organization to have an embedded researcher for like a bunch of teams, because if there's a growth team, there's a bunch of product teams. So I would guess like not just the growth team can get the researcher. (laughs) So usually only mega enterprises have the everyone gets a researcher model. So that wasn't the most eloquent way to answer the question, but it all comes down to how might we get the people that need the information to make decisions to really embody it, understand it to the point where they can rearticulate the insights. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about how you think about training an org to value and, you know, actively re- resource research stuff. Cause right. You, you know, we were talking a little bit before about teams saying like, we don't have the time for this. And, you know, I'd imagine that some orgs are like, we don't have the time for research. Like it's this, it's this thing that's going to take us a whole bunch of time. And, you know, t- talk to me about how like the pitch that you would make to growth teams that are listening to this or product teams that are listening to this and why they should spend the time and effort and energy and how they might think about that as like hiring dedicated research people or, you know, like building research into the design function or something like that. Yeah. I mean, my, my kind of pitch for research always goes back down to, you know, what I said before, like it's easier to fix ideas than it is design, easier to fix design than it is code. So I'm always down to do the extra work to like pull up numbers and show examples. And there's the, there's like the Harvard business review chart that I like have copied and pasted so many times, but design led organizations outperform the market by 200% or more. So, you know, especially when you put those type of numbers down, people might slow down, but in reality, like how do you motivate people to do something out of what they consider to be their normal job description? One way that's super effective. So research and design are often in the same org. So if, you know, if you just make it an expectation in the career ladder, like you want to keep getting promoted, you have to be able to perform research to help understand the the user. So it's easier to to pull the levers on the design side. Now on the PM side, that is hard because they have so much on their plate and then it's like a different organization. So just in my experience, it's like the people self-select. The people that are interested in it are interested in it and they're going to take the time to learn. The people that are not interested in it, I try and, you know, really empower their their designer to do that and at least like partner with their PM on like, here's where I think we need to do some research and like, let's get some time allocated for it. So it's a bit of a, like a negotiation and just seeing like where the interest lies. Yeah. At the end of the day, it, it very much seems like teams will have better outcomes and outputs if they value and resource research as a core function of how they operate, why they operate. Like I think a lot of growth teams would avoid bad experiments if they had better generative research. They'll be able to better inform the the experiments to spend more time on through concept validation and usability testing can tell them way more than than what a report could if they're just looking at a chart or a graph. 
Well, Laura, this has been a ton of fun. Any anything else you want to like toss out there to close with that you haven't been able to to mention, or or you feel like you kind of got it all in? Yeah, I mean, just in general, the sentiment in the UX research profession over the last few years has been shifting. So, like when I got my start, it was very ivory tower. It's like I'm the researcher, you're not a researcher. Like, don't try and do this. Keep your hands off and just let me do it which is super snooty of an attitude. But I think that reality has clicked in to the broader UX research profession, which is some research is better than nothing. And so like, how might we just empower people to learn the basics? And the thing is, research can be very dangerous if you have leading questions or not a good sample size, or you're not analyzing the data properly. So knowing the basics is important to make sure you actually have reliable insights. So it is self-learning or just like learning it on the side is is good. But I think that's why it's important to, to pair things with the behavioral like analytics, because if you're not a research expert and you're doing it, you might get it wrong because you actually don't know what all the right steps are. And so it's, it's important to have both the, the the analytics and trying the research up front. So Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, Laura, thank you again so much for joining on the podcast. Thanks. This was so fun and can't wait to keep experimenting. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. Well, really appreciate it. And and for all of those listening here, really appreciate you spending your time here. Uh, If you like this episode, make sure to hit the subscribe button. Check out, I think it's almost 90 other episodes with amazing experts about all sorts of topics of channels for growth, strategies for growth, tactics for growth, all that. Each episode is a deep dive and a different topic. If you were a a fan, definitely leave a review. Written reviews go a really long way as well. I think that's all I got for today. If you got any feedback, any thoughts, anything like that, feel free to reach out. And with that, I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks.